2: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 277th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is the young British artist behind two of the most acclaimed and quietly revolutionary shows currently on TV. She is the creator, writer, and star of Fleabag, a BBC Three show that airs in the U.S. on Amazon, and the second season of which drops on May 17th. And she is also the developer for TV and season one writer of BBC America's Killing Eve, the second season of which has been rolling out since April. Described by the New York Times as, quote, a writer and star of strange and beguiling comedic works, close quote, the Guardian has said, quote, not since Ricky Gervais created The Office has a newcomer appeared and rewritten the grammar of television overnight, close quote. I'm talking, of course, about Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Over the course of our conversation at the New York Edition Hotel in the Flatiron District of New York, the 33-year-old and I discussed why her acting ambitions, which led her to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, eventually gave way to writing after she met and became best friends with one Vicki Jones, how Fleabag evolved from a one-woman stage show into a full-fledged TV series, and how, independent of that, her association with Killing Eve came about. What feminism means to her and what she does and doesn't aim to communicate about it through her shows, what she has made of her brushes with giant film franchises, from her acting work in 2018's solo A Star Wars Story, to her recently announced gig as a writer on the next James Bond movie, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Baby, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
1: I was born and raised in London and my mum works for the Ironmongers Guild and my dad has a company called Amersham.
2: And if we were to talk to folks who knew you growing up, would we be told that you were one of the popular kids or nerdier kids or (laughs) how would they describe you?
1: Well, I was a committed tomboy, so I was in that whatever category that is. And I was a kind of an in-betweeny person. I was kind of friends with kind of everyone. I think. I don't know if they'd say that. I'd hope they'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was an in-betweeny tomboy. In <laughs> yeah. I called myself Alex and I was mainly up a tree. You, you caught why going. Alex? Because actually I met a boy when I was dressed as a boy and he was called Alex and he thought I was a boy until my sister said that I was called Phoebe. And then he was like, oh, my God, I've been talking to a girl this entire time. And I was like, no, Alex. And then he never spoke to me again. And so in memory of him,
2: I named myself Alex. Very interesting. And maybe a reverberation of your Fleabag pilot. I think there's the drunk girl that (laughs) like you're a boy. But anyway, so your writing, which will come through chronologically, but it does seem to maybe a recurring theme, if it's a theme, is catching people off guard, a little bit of shock effect. Were you... Going for that sort of thing, even as a kid, were you somebody who would get a little kick out of taking people aback?
1: I think so, yes. I think so. Just causing a little ruffle. ruffle. Just ruffle
2: a little feather. Yeah, I read something so like I you... Feel. I mean, was your family sort of sharing in your... Sense of humor and just willingness to make a joke of things or all of them, maybe?
1: Oh, yeah. April yeah. Fool's Day is a big day in my family. Yeah. <laughs> <because> <laughs> everyone's frightened to leave the house. Yeah, we've got quite a family of pranksters, really. I remember one of my favorite ones we ever did was... Unroll like do you have chocolate Swiss rolls? Do you know what I mean by I chocolate know, Swiss no, rolls? No. Anyway, so you can like unroll this chocolate thing yeah. and it's got like a nice creamy thing inside. And us kids unrolled it and put loads of mustard in it and then <laughs> rolled it back up. And then when Dad came back from work, we were like, Dad, we made you a little
2: cake And he was like, Oh thanks and we were, like sit down and eat it in front of us all. We were cruel, really, but it was uh it was very funny. I think one of the things I read prepping for this was uh your grandmother may have been a fun target.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. She was a very proper Christian
2: lady. Yes, She was kind of one of
1: those people who seemed very um, buttoned up but actually had a huge dirty laugh when you made her laugh and that was worth it.
2: Nice. Well, just again, anticipating some topics that may come up down the road here, sex, sexuality, you know, some families, it's, you don't go into those topics. Other families are extremely open about it where did you guys fall on the spectrum of discussing these things
1: yeah we were pretty open about it i think or certainly we were open about everything i know that we were definitely brought up in a family where if you wanted to talk about something anything you were encouraged to so it wasn't like we just sat around talking about sex all day but it was definitely a sense of if i ever had any questions about sex i could certainly go and ask my mum about it without question
2: and then as you got older and it became a thing that might actually be more part of life? Was that still discussed as frankly as it is on some of the shows?
1: Yes. I mean, maybe not right (laughs) to the extent that, I mean, unfortunately they had to hear about it anyway because of the play. um, But I think I've always found something quite liberating about being able to talk about the unsayable things, not just for shock factor, but just because of the relief of it, you know, people actually telling you what happens behind the curtains and (laughs) sharing
2: that. Yes. Well, so how did acting first, center the picture, and in what ways was it a part of your life before A-levels?
1: I always, always, always wanted to be an actress. Well, certainly an actor when I was Alex. I would sign up to anything. There was, like, our local church put on pantomimes and all that kind of thing, and I would really... And actually, me and my friend Maria, who's also a tomboy... We used to just dress up as boys and just act on the street like we were. We'd like fix bikes for people and stuff. Like it was all total. <laughs> <laughs> We'd just turn over our own bikes and there's always a little performance thing sort of going on. Yeah. And then so all the way through school, I was really interested in it. And then when I went to college and did GCSE drama and stuff, you know, it's suddenly finding the place where I could really hone in on it. And I realized that this is what I wanted to do for real.
2: Just to come back for a second, how long was Alex in the picture?
1: Alex was around until I was about 10 or okay, 11. Okay, okay, Yeah.
2: Well, so getting into... I mean, he's still here. He's just in a little just... dress and a jacket, <laughs> <laughs> sitting opposite you. So Rada, that's no small thing to get in there. And so I guess I'd like to ask you how you would describe your feelings about acting and also your outlook for your future prospects with acting going into Rada versus coming out in 06. Basically, did things change during those years to affect the way you felt about yourself as a potential professional actor going out?
1: Yes, very much so. There was a huge change. I went in as a 17, 18 year old feeling like I just wanted to be a character actress and I just wanted to go and do mad things. And I just wanted to kind of bounce off the walls for a few years and then also have a kind of social life and have that uni experience. And, and, went and it's very regimented and it takes itself, rightly so, very seriously in terms of the hours that they pack a lot into three years. So that was a bit of a culture shock. Mm. I, thought we'd, <laughs> I thought we'd be at the pub more than we were. That's what I'd heard from uh, you know, people at friends at gone to University. So it was great for discipline. But I felt when I was there during training that there was a right way and a wrong way to act. And I couldn't work out what that meant for a long time. And it was only after years after I'd left that I've rediscovered that again. That might have been a really important part of that journey for me. But I felt like there was a proper way to stand and a proper way to speak. And actually, that's not true. And I'm not sure if that's what they were trying to teach me, but that's kind of really how I felt then. And I sort of became less and less creative there. And by the time I left, I thought if I just spoke like this and had a very straight back, then I would be at the RSC in six months.
2: (laughs) And of course, that's not how it works. Well, it sounds, though, from stuff I've read, that they, in some ways, and I don't know who they is, but I guess maybe certain people there or certain classes or whatever, beat down your confidence a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. And I... I mean, I love me a bit of praise. I've got to say, like praise and, and a bit of encouragement. Right. And also, I don't mind messing it up as long as I know what I'm messing up. And I think that was the thing. Like, there was lots of, there was a sort of method, Stanislavskian kind of way of approaching acting at that drama school at the time, which again, really worked for the majority of people, but it just didn't quite connect with me. And I just feel like I always want to be in the moment. Yeah. I want it to feel real and I want to say it like a real person would say it. And anything outside of that would be a mystery to me. I think my job is to convince you that I'm doing this for real. Right, right, <laughs> right. as far as my job goes. Right. And so these kind of sort of bizarre sort of exercises we have to do, I can never quite get my head around them. But looking back now, I do have a different perspective on it and I can see the merit in some of them. But really, I feel like the best way to train an actor is to get them acting yeah. from the first day and just do that and then maybe get them directing, get them writing, just get them feeling what it's like to be in a play or on screen as much as you can.
2: Have any of your Rada classmates gone on to a lot of work yet? Yeah, loads of them did. <laughs> people Americans might know
1: let me see who's in my year um so Arthur Darville was a big hitter he went into Doctor Who pretty All soon right. afterwards and he's been working here for quite a while Kato Flynn had worked with Mike Lee and Sean Clifford was in my year who mm-hmm, plays Claire and mm-hmm. Fleabag and I'm sure there were those others I'll get yeah, yeah. yeah, back
2: to you about them <laughs> so you graduate you come out you're now having to look for work independently for the first time how did that go
1: Oh, it's cold out there, isn't
2: it? It was so cold out there. But it was, in some ways, you know, you can look back so
1: romantically at those times because it was so hard at the time because you feel so passionately, I felt so passionately about this is the right thing for me and I really wanted to do it. But also, you know how many thousands there are and it's very hard to practice acting. You can't just go into your room and just practice acting. I mean, maybe... (laughs) I'm not saying I haven't tried, yeah. <laughs> but you want to be out there. You want to be doing it. You want to be learning. And so it was really, really hard on one level, but I knew it was going to be. So my determination wasn't knocked because of that. The best thing that happened was meeting my friend Vicky Jones. Yes. And then we started a theatre company together.
2: Before we go too far down that, though, let's. So, this was what, like about two years of just yeah. a lot of auditions, but nothing clicking, or not even auditions? Not even auditions. No, yeah. it was just
1: temping and doing funny accents for my family. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and did I see at one point you applied to law school? I did. Yeah, I did. You were ready to give it up.
1: Well, weirdly, it's kind of hard to explain this. It wasn't that I was going to give it up. I just felt like it's not coming for me right now. And I felt like my brain was suffering. And it always really appealed to me, the idea of the law. And it's a form.
2: Of theatricality in the courtroom. Yeah, Yeah.
1: that, and also just argument and the power of words and the power of perspective. Mm -hmm. It always really appealed to me, and it just feels like a constantly moving game and world, this, and that you have to be so present and so on top of culture and the way that people speak, you know, to keep ahead of it and on top of it. So I really, really love that aspect of it. So I thought I was going to go and do that. And then, of course, the moment I got a place at law school, I got my first acting job.
2: (laughs) Well, so what were some of the ones that did not work out during that period where you did get an audition, but it didn't go somewhere. Is this where Downton Abbey happened?
1: That's where Downton Abbey happened. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> what, yeah. what went on there? Who were you going out for?
1: I was going up for, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed, I can't remember the name of the character. She was the blonde sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went in, I prepared the role and I went in, I was very excited. My agent was very excited. I had a part of this. And I went in and played it really straight and really... I thought it was quite a moving performance, <laughs> actually, in the room. I felt I moved myself slightly, I think. And then the director was laughing all the way through it. But, like, genuinely, yeah. he was just having a little chuckle. And I was like, "That's so strange. Maybe there's some sort of activity happening behind me. And then afterwards he was like, oh, I didn't realise that this character was humorous or like funny in any way and i was like jesus neither did i what have i been <laughs> <I> doing <laughs> so that was uh, that one burned but i was so pleased because the actress is so astonishing who played that part anyway and that's so nice you know when you see those parts you go oh i see now
2: how they imagined i see
1: it. <laughs> and not only how they imagined it but how it's meant to be done you okay. know and i feel that so many times with auditions that you don't get it's, i mean it's worse when you feel like no i could have but that's so rare you know when you feel like i could
2: have done that better All right, so Vicky Jones, let's break it really down. How did you guys first even cross paths?
1: So we crossed paths because Vicky was directing my boyfriend at the time. We just left drama school and he was in my year. And she was directing him upstairs in a pub, for like a pub theater thing. And she was the first real life director i'd ever been <laughs> close to right poor thing she obviously became this target for me and so the show ended and she was downstairs in the bar and i went up and i was so sort of embarrassed that i was even an actor and asking her for advice or a job or whatever you know it's so mortifying this whole thing so i just went up and said hi i'm phoebe you know i really love what you did and if you, you know i'm an actress and I she's really basically loved a it.
2: contemporary right yeah,
1: yeah yeah oh she was older yeah. but essentially yeah but i still felt like she was this like grown up in the industry even though i mean i soon found out that we were just as much kicking like just she was the same as me, really. Right. And I asked her, and I was expecting her to go, yep, thanks, yep, you can email this fake email address <laughs> and send me your like, CV, which is just a blank page. And she just went, oh, my God, you're an actress? That's so exciting. Congratulations. It's such a wonderful thing. And I was like, are you taking the piss out of me? And she was like, no. She was like, that's such an exciting thing and how brave of you to do that. And she was just so lovely. And then she did. Then I asked her for a job and she said, if I ever, anything ever comes up, I will call you. And she did, six months later, called me. And she was brought onto this project that was a total vanity project by by somebody and the play was kind of turning into a disaster, and she cast me in it, and then she got fired. Vicky got fired.
2: <laughs> You're um, still there, which is she is
1: <laughs> honestly, Vicky's like the most kind, gentle, loving, talented, generous person in the world. So, for her, anyone to have any reason to fire, her, I mean, there was something <laughs> really dark going on. Right. So she was fired, and the moment she was fired, I
2: quit, uh-huh.
1: and then we went to the pub together, and the rest is history. We,
2: yes, well, it seems like she had obviously her own frustrations with the business at the time. You certainly had yours. How did you arrive at the conclusion that you should both focus on writing? Oh, well, we
1: started Dry Write and we didn't realize it was going to turn into this, but we just thought, why don't we put on a night of anonymous writing vicky had worked at the royal court so she knew a load of writers and like the really exciting up-and-coming writers who are now like the big established ones it's been amazing to watch them all just explode like that and we found a pub in east london and we just asked people to write a monologue with a certain brief i asked my actor mates and she asked her writer mates and then it came together and we started this night and then people wanted another one another one so we'd spend the next two years giving writers briefs that then there'd be like 11 writers writing and we'd work on their things. I never really acted in it because I didn't want it to be like, it was just <laughs> my, my own vantage point. <laughs> right. I didn't really act in it, but Vicky would direct them and we were producing them. And they were always questions like, how do you make an audience fall in love with a character in under five minutes? How do you make a guilty person appear innocent? And all these kind of challenges we gave writers. And so without really realizing it, we were giving ourselves a training ground over those two years, collaborating with all these writers. And then, there was one time when somebody dropped out or there wasn't a writer for this one particular night, we call, which we called the mob. Uh-huh. And the brief was to get the audience to heckle without them knowing that's what they were meant to do. <laughs> and we tried to help the writers by splitting the audience into men and women in a traverse stage. They were looking at each other. So that was the kind of thing that would just yeah. sort of spice it up. And then all the pieces were quite aggressively misogynistic. Because I think the writers thought, and you can see why, that that would make women stand up out of their chairs and right, heckle. Right. And when we were reading them, we were going, "Oh no!" It actually kind of makes us want to hide. And right. like, and so I told Vicky, I was like, "I kind of wish there was a piece in there just to balance it out that was a bit like this." And then I told her this piece, and she was like, "You've got to write that." And so I wrote it and performed in it. And it had went you down written well.
2: much before that? No. Not at all.
1: No, not at all. Like some like crap poems when I was like ten. Like nothing and this wasn't that far off. But it went down really well and I suddenly had that feeling of like, Oh my God, I think I might be able to do this and then Vicky really encouraged me and then I wrote a couple of other short plays and then there was one night we were at the Soho Theatre and Vicky and I were outside and she saw the artistic director standing by the door having a cigarette and she just bowled up to him and she was like I mean we'd had a few glasses of wine <laughs> and she was like Phoebe's got 10 short plays and they're so fucking good and you've got to put them on upstairs and she came back up to me and she was like you've got a night at the Soho and wow. I'm going to direct them all and so I mean I literally owe her everything because then because of that night went on and then some producers came to see that night and then they commissioned crashing off the back of
2: it. And- so that, were they all about 10 minutes or it was just varying lengths?
1: They were all about 10 minutes because Vicky also worked for the Oxford School of Drama, uh, which is a drama school, and they had a really smart idea, which is they got new writers to write two-handers for their actors because it's really hard to find two-handers for your showcase Uh and everything. So they just commissioned young writers to do it, and Vicky had asked me to do them. So I had a collection of those, and they were all about 10 minutes long, yeah. And was one of them the initial seed of Fleabat? No, actually. That was another shorts night that, having done that shorts night, Another friend of mine, Deborah. Honestly, the power of friendship.
2: I tell you. <laughs> that's great. <yeah. laughs>
1: she was running her own storytelling night, and she said, "Will you come and do a, a kind of stand-upy storytelling thing?" And I did that, and then that's what turned into. So your
2: there. mandate that led to that was that it be basically a one-person stand-up doing your own material.
1: Yeah, it can be whatever. I said I don't want to do stand-up, and she said they are comedians, but they're not. I mean, they're sitting down, so it's not like <laughs> it's not like officially a stand-up thing. And so she said it can be about anything you want. And actually, I felt like because it was the theatre crowd that I knew it was a comedy crowd Mm -hmm. I felt like I had less to lose going in there and bombing (laughs) and I went in and I told the story of basically the first 10 minutes of the play But then years later, well, not years later, but like a year later after I'd written Fleabag and everything, I suddenly put the spotlight back on Jones and was like, hold on, now you write something. And then she wrote this play over about three or four days and just sort of looked at me and was like, oh, I've written this. And I read it and was like, holy shit. Really good. She's just brilliant. Just like searingly, searingly brilliant. I wasn't surprised, but it was just how quickly she turned it around. And then that uh, play won the Verity Bargate Award and she was off and nasty. her way too, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, so I want to zero in on Fleabag the Play, which obviously a much smaller proportion of the population has gotten to enjoy than the show that came as a result of it. So I know there are differences, obviously. So 65 minutes always, or that was what got done at Edinburgh?
1: No, that is the, the that is the length, although it did push to a 70 once Seven. or twice in New York, <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was put in
2: trouble for that. Right. Well, um... so to what extent is... Speaking only about the play right now, is Fleabag autobiographical?
1: It's funny, that question, because it's really personal, the play, but it's not really autobiographical. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone in my life that is dead in the TV show and the play is very much alive. The story was definitely a constructed story around feelings that I had that were really personal. Like I was feeling really cynical about sex and the perception of women and feeling like I had a brain, but that my body was the most important thing and that how that would manifest in a character and then just amplify that loads and loads and loads. And there were a little, I mean, a lot of the jokes are jokes that either came from my life or that I just thought about or experienced in real life. Or, and there are a couple of like interactions that may have yeah. may slightly mirror things that happened in my life. But, uh, <laughs> but overall, it's
2: more the emotion of it that was uh, personal. Well, a few <laughs> follow-ups on that. Where does the name Fleabek come from?
1: Fleabag's my childhood nickname. How, How did that childhood. happen?
2: Where do they come by Fleabag? I
1: don't know, you fee know. Fee, flea, I guess it's be bee and yeah. then flea. Yeah. Yeah, I've asked. <laughs> I've asked many times. I think it just came out of nowhere.
2: What is the real world model for the best friend relationship at the center of the show? I think I Oh, can that's, that's Vicky. Yeah, that is. That's... And was that character, though, also deceased in the play? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was always driven by the idea of, there's this underlying grief.
1: Yes. One of the first things I wrote, actually physically wrote down on a page, because I'd written loads of jokes and stuff and put them on Post-its on the wall, but one of the first things I wrote, and I was just kind of free writing, and uh, was the passage at the beginning about how Boo had died and that she was trying to punish her boyfriend for sleeping with somebody. She just thought she was going to get tangled in a bike, but she ended up getting hit by a car. And well, and I wrote that and was like, "Whoa, <laughs> what that is where it's come from. But then I suddenly, when I realized, that I've always wanted to write about friendship and I've wanted to write a kind of ode to my friendship with Vicky. And that was a big part of my life. So I wanted to express that. But actually I found it much more powerful to express that through the loss of someone like that rather than...
2: What did she them. make of like, so this is what... You would feel like, and this is what you would be like if I got whacked.
1: Yeah, so like, please don't, (laughs) don't because I'm going to be in
0: trouble.
2: (laughs) A recurring theme in your content, I know content's a weird word, but because I'm trying to incorporate plays and shows Mm -hmm. and everything, seems to be, maybe I'm overanalyzing this, but breast size. Villanelle (laughs) is described as flat-chested. You talk about breasts again in the pilot of Fleabag and onwards. And then I read a quote in another interview, quote, I don't think I would have ever ridden Fleabag if I had bigger tits quote. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My God, did I say that? that so that
2: tell coming. me, what, why would breast size affect riding Fleabag? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can't remember saying that. I don't know, I think. So the, with Villanelle, it was because we needed a description of a girl who... We needed a description of somebody by a drunk person or a high person that, with one little clue that said it was a woman. Right. And it was really hard to come up with something like that and this high girl says she was a flat-chested psycho or something. And that was the only thing we could uh so I got to cram in my boob on there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh I don't know. I think talking about they're so important to women. I know they're important to um, to some men, to straight men and maybe some gay men. I don't know. The stakes are so high around them at school. People are obsessed with them. People pretend that theirs aren't really theirs. They're (laughs) obsessed with everybody else's. And I think that it's talked about and thought about a lot more in real life than I see it talked about on screen. So it just feels like something that There was an opening in the marketplace. I feel like we see a lot of them on TV. I don't know
2: if we actually hear women talking about them. So in 2013, I don't know how this specifically came about, but Fleabag winds up, meaning you wind up at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. And I wonder if you can describe how it went over there.
1: Oh, it was amazing. We were a group of like four of us, five of us, and had absolutely no idea how it was going to land and with no expectations really. But we went on at the underbelly and we had a couple of kind of okay reviews but the word of mouth thing is the most powerful thing about edinburgh and that's why it's such a great leveler for work because you're up there with people very experienced people and first timers it's just what people say on the street it's just so powerful that
2: and are there multiple performances of it there so if somebody didn't make you know, the first they can go to another one or is it you just got to see it once? Oh, no, we did it for four weeks. Four weeks at yeah, the Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And okay. so
1: the word of mouth kind of picked up and then we got a uh, five-star review in the Scotsman and that means an awful lot in Edinburgh. And remember us getting that and opening the paper and just looking at each other and going, oh my God, this is amazing. And then when it sold out, We just felt there was a lot of work that year about, like, by women about similar kind of things. It really felt like there was something happening then, and that all of us there had kind of tapped into something that was part of the bigger conversation.
2: And you guys ended up winning Fringe First Award. And I guess at one of these performances, somebody from BBC was there. Is that how that all started? The TV component?
1: Yes. Yeah. Chris Sussman, who originally commissioned the show from the BBC, he was there in the audience and he really loved it, and then said there were so many bits of it that he could see very clearly, and then, yeah, he commissioned a pilot.
2: So it was a pilot, and then, I mean, you had at that point never had anything to do with TV, right? It was after that that they, when now there was buzz around Fleabag, that they're suddenly interested in crashing and other things, right?
1: Yeah, so I'd written the pilot for Crashing years before, so I'd had that experience with a TV producing company, and they'd helped me develop the crashing pilot, which had then gone to the bottom of pilot Channel Four, <laughs> and then it was only when Fleabag hit in Edinburgh when they pulled it back out. Then so it was strange so that I ended up writing Crashing years after. And I felt like I'd changed as a writer between Crashing and Fleabag, but then so then going back to Crashing and writing that first, I made Fleabag like kind of it was kind of re- it was a really yeah, weird a kind a of jumble. like model of how yeah. it was made.
2: But they were really two different times of my life summed up in those two shows. And now that there's this interest in having you suddenly for the first time work in TV where it's not, it's mutual interest in you working for TV. How did your day-to-day life change? Like, did you have to quickly get disciplined about writing in a different way? Or, I mean, I guess initially it's the pilot. So it's, you can, it's not a massive, I mean, I'm sure it's still quite a lot, but it's, I guess the big change would be when something gets ordered to series, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And how quickly did that all happen? Well, it
1: took me a year to adapt the pilot. I just couldn't, Get my head around it. I just couldn't work out how to get that same feeling, and I kept feeling like I was betraying my little play <laughs> by not being. Uh, I, I, I was convincing myself that that was the right way to tell the story. Was that play, and so I, I was very resistant. But then the moment we got the the pilot green lit, it's that same feeling. It's a mixture of just absolute euphoria and total fear because you have to fill that time. But then also the fun starts because then it's just post-its on the wall. If I can have post-its on a wall, I am happy.
2: <laughs> that's, your, that's your way of yeah, mapping Yeah, and it I'm
1: out. really not very disciplined in terms of time. I have no, like, it comes, I, I write in very, like, weird times of day and suddenly I write for three days and then not for four days. <laughs> but, yeah, the post-its keep me, keep me
2: calm. Well, I guess another thing that happened in this, in this period, I believe, before even crashing or flea bag were on the air anywhere was that suddenly there's a renewed interest in you as an actress for others as well, right? So this is where Broadchurch comes in? Yeah, well, Broadchurch actually, doing
1: the play, that gang saw me in, in the play as well at Edinburgh. So it wasn't even the TV show that did that. So I had done, so Broadchurch came off the back of doing the play as well.
2: This is the second series that went on in 2015 in the UK. And is that where you first met, I think, where would you have first crossed paths with Olivia Colman who plays your godmother in Fleabag?
1: Yeah. We actually first met on The Iron Lady.
2: All right. Um can you remind so this is 2011 that movie came out with Meryl?
1: Yeah, with Meryl playing Margaret Thatcher.
2: That must have felt like a big deal. We didn't we I didn't mean to gloss over that, so that was <laughs> in the that was in the dry dry otherwise drier period that was yes
1: that was and that sound I mean that was a massive
2: massive massive deal that makes my dry period not
1: sound like a dry period <laughs> but um but it, it 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 was huge and I had one scene and it was with Meryl and I met Collie in the we didn't have any scenes together but I met her in the makeup truck and we were sat next door to each other and we just started talking and making each other laugh and then we were sort of like oh friend <laughs> and uh she uh, so we kept in touch and then we ended up doing a play together in the West End and that was called Hay Fever. And that's when, this is when things were starting to sort of pick up a little bit. Yep. And then we, so we spent three months on stage together. So you guys and more importantly, obviously backstage together. it off. Yeah. yeah.
2: Now that you mention Iron Lady, I did see somewhere that you had had a somewhat strange interaction with Meryl. What was that about? <laughs> I
1: know. <laughs> I just panicked. <laughs> I just panicked and ended up... I just thought that... uh, I thought I'd made a joke earlier that had made her laugh, so I thought that meant we were lifelong friends and that she was mine and no one else could have her. (laughs) And she came down at lunch and just asked me what I was eating. And I was just so so panicked and a need to have some banter with her for some reason i just screamed my apple crumble and threw my pudding to my chest all over my costume <laughs> oh she my was God. like oh i wasn't gonna take it from you but okay thank you and then we didn't really speak again but she was um she was she was such a she's such a wonderful person a lovely, actress, <laughs> lovely actress lovely actress yes. you know, i'm saying that she's
2: a lovely actress <laughs> got a lot of
1: promise <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's a lovely person obviously yeah. she's like the one yes. she's the one i always wanted to work with so i wish I, i'm not going to take apple crumble ever again
2: <laughs> I, I i wonder if she's pieced together that that person is the same one that is now uh, probably crossed her but anyway so later in 2015 is when crashing now goes on the air for the first time a show following six people in their 20s i guess all living together in what was once a hospital to have that go on first what was that like and what was the reception like
1: That was, it was really exciting. We had an amazing cast. It was an ensemble piece and it was a slightly different experience because I didn't have as much control as I then later did with Fleabag because what Two Brothers Pictures did who were producing... Free Bag, they're two writers, um, Jack and Harry Williams. And so they gave me executive producer off the bat, which never happens. And they were like, "You're a writer, you know what you're doing. We're going to leave you alone. You come to us when you need us." And that was very, very unusual. And Crashing, I had amazing producers, but it was slightly more traditional in that I was the writer, and I, they were they were serving my Verticoms vision. But there was a, a lot of other kind of notes involved, and so you feel like you're trying to please a lot of different types of people. And so that experience was a bit more committed. Yeah. And I think I can. I think I could kind of feel that not that it wasn't a good experience but it was very different from going into the kind of authored thing Um, but and it came out to a kind of there were some diehard crashing fans and then but there was a sort of middling response in the press for it and i was so proud of it and i was so proud and grateful for all the actors who were in it because they were so fucking good and it really hurt actually when it first came out Mm -hmm. because you're sort of like oh, man, people don't know how much work goes in and how much love goes in and how much hope goes in. And then they're kind of just trashed by people. But then, you know, that's just the business. But but it's really changed
2: how, I
1: mean, the more work you do, the more sympathetic you are to other people's work. Like, I will never trash another person's TV show ever again. Ever again, yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And we should note that you not only wrote that, but you were acting in it. How did you feel about the experience of holding both jobs at the same time, because obviously that was going to apply with Fleabag. But n- I mean, when we get to Killing Eve, you probably could have done that if you'd wanted to, but declined to do so. So was that because of some conclusion you'd made of on maybe along the way, possibly in the course of doing Crashing?
1: No, actually, it's all really instinctive. I knew I was going to play. Uh, so the whole of crashing came from one of the short plays that I'd written. that was on at the Soho that Vicky Drunkenly got me a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a slot in. I'm making it sound like Vicky drinks a lot. She doesn't actually. She really, she really, really doesn't. That was just that one. Right. You know, like we, we had a good time in our twenties. But uh, <laughs> she, yeah. So that was the short play. That was my favorite. Came from my favorite short play there, and that was the one that, that was picked up and then expanded. So actually, all my stuff, well, both of those shows, came mm-hmm. from ten-minute things to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed playing. Lulu, but I was also strangely the least interested in her as a character because I love actors so much. And so I loved writing for all these other actors. And towards the end of the writing period, I mean, me and my producer Josh Cole were sort of like, the, "You know, the most underwritten character here is Lulu. That's crazy. It's the one that I'm actually meant to be acting in." And so it did a kind of quick rewrite and and just try, trying to make that character. Uh, more complex. And I think weirdly that she's a sort of prototype Fleabag in a way, that character now because all the complexity I think I was sort of saving or had, had written for Fleabag.
2: Which you were simultaneously expanding for TV yeah. at the same time you're dealing with crap. How do you do multiple projects like that at the same time and not lose your mind
1: oh no you do lose your mind <laughs> you just lose your mind that's right. just what you have to do you just have
2: to embrace but it. it was
1: but it was really hard to like saying like this is going to be my uh, tv debut character so i want lulu to be great but also i don't want to make her too like fleabag because then what's gonna happen next i mean mm-hmm. it's a great i mean diamond shoes very tight kind mm-hmm, of um mm-hmm. problem to have very practically i would just whenever i thought something funny it would either go in a lulu box or a fleabag box and the tone of the shows was slightly different. So. was and then, really relying on the judgment of the people I was working with—that right. great producer and George Kane, he's a great director—and and they were kind of help measure, like finding that character with me.
2: So, crashing is, I guess, basically dealt with. While you're now still dealing with expanding Fleabag, and with the expansion of Fleabag, I wondered who you thought your who you imagined the audience for this show would be, and what you were aiming to convey to them. Was it the exact same? Thing in your mind that the play would have been for who would be who would gravitate towards it and what you were wanting to say or does that change when you now have to take what I think was three days in the in the play and blow that out over several weeks and on and on
1: I don't really think of a demographic when I'm writing I'm aware of it but I'm but not when I'm actually writing it. it doesn't affect or inform my writing but I felt like I'd have been surprised if it was you know, like 65-year-old men <laughs> that went absolutely batshit crazy right. to Fleabag <laughs> and 25-year-old women right. sort of could take it or leave it. <laughs> that would have been a surprise. But the joyful thing is that it's been a kind of mix of everybody, um, particularly the second season. But but the first one, you know, I I felt like I was writing it for people who, the similar kind of people who were drawn to the play, yeah. I, I hope would be drawn to the TV show.
2: When was the first screen acting? Was it something around like The Iron Lady? Because I think we shouldn't, gloss over the fact that that is a very different skill set than theater acting which is what i assume you trained in exclusively at rada so like how did you suddenly become equipped to handle acting for a camera
1: oh it was it is a really different thing i do find it really different thing at less and less so but at the time i felt like being in front of a camera you all i was taught was that you have to be very very still and you have, to, you have to convey everything with your eyes, but don't move your eyes. And um, it has to be a physical performance, but, but don't move. And if you pick that up, you have to pick it up the same way in every single time. So I was sort of like just this potato for ages on screen. I was just like, I can't. Move, otherwise I won't be a good potato. <laughs> but then as I felt much, much freer on, on stage, I remember an actor called Sandy Townsend, and I was doing a play with him at the Royal Court, and he said, and I was, say, I was saying this, this conversation with him, I was like, well, I, I get the moment I walk on stage, I get this buzz, I get the sense of power and, and and fun. And, you know, you've got the, the power of storytelling in you. So you're like, oh, come on, we're going to tell you a story. And the audience is there going, tell us a story, tell us yeah. a story. And I, because there's an absence of that with its screen. And he mm-hmm. just said, you just need to f- give that camera... Just give that camera the same weight as you give the audience, and to see them as your audience. And it took me a little while, but that actually really helped in the end. That when you walk on a set and you feel the camera, that that sense of responsibility to tell a story should come alive in you again. And it didn't. It would just die, and I would and I'd be so frightened. Well, and that's the Iron a,
2: Lady, I was really frightened. That was a, well. So, but also, I would think there's something about control because what you do on stage, nobody can change. Yeah. But it's out of your hand. You, could, you what takes are used or whatever. You, your performance and screen can be constructed by somebody else, right?
1: Yeah, and you don't really understand what that process is. Like, only through m- m- writing these other shows and being part of the post-production and everything, I'm seen like, oh, that's why... They do that. That's why they get that coverage. That's right. why, that's what a wide shot's for. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know, and now, like, I understand that so much more. It's given me way more confidence on a set. But mm-hmm. I think because I'm quite a self-aware person, if I'm on a set, I know that there are loads of actors who completely shut everything off. And I wish I could do that when they're on set. They're just real and they're just, mm-hmm. and, and they, it's the job of the camera and it's the job of the director to catch whatever mm-hmm. you're doing. But you've just got to be really live. Whereas I'm always sort of just kind of, <laughs> of want to hide from the camera until, until now I
2: worked out how it all worked. And right. now,
1: now I, I get it more.
2: Well, so with Fleabag where you're now again acting for a camera but a lo- you know much more screen time than you would have ever had in The Iron Lady or even Crashing where it's split with so many other people, did you feel confident then to go and on top of that add some kind of bold things like breaking the fourth wall? That's I just wonder how some of those decisions were made and how you how confident you felt doing it with the first season.
1: I felt confident with like a few aspects of it because when i feel there is a there's something creatively exciting i'll latch onto it and i'm like i know that's right i know that's right there's lots of things i have no idea <laughs> if they're right or not but that is right and i knew that the the fourth wall breaking was that the, the show would would not exist without it because the whole relationship is with the audience. Mm-hmm. For me, the central relationship is with the audience, and I just knew certain things for sure. Like I knew the control thing really interesting because I always thought that Fleabag had control over. At the when when at the beginning, the way I thought about it was that she had control over the making of the TV show as well. So in the beginning, uh, of the way she of the narrative, mm-hmm. so she can cut people off halfway through a sentence. Right. And, or uh, sex. <laughs> yeah. Or sex, and she'll just um. But like the actual like cut um uh, yeah. like the actual edit yes that so she can kind of control that She's like, that person's not interested anymore we can move on and and that control over the storytelling she loses that control through the series and then the camera lingers longer than it's meant to in a certain scene she's sort of like get out (laughs) i love that idea to play with and i was sure about that and also little things that even before i knew what the real difference between handheld and on sticks mm-hmm. was or the effect of it was, I knew certain scenes I just wanted to be on sticks. I wanted to be very, very still. And usually it was the ones when she was being out of control mm-hmm. because it was it made her more exposed. Mm-hmm. Whereas often I think if they want to show somebody drunk then they'll have Wobbly, kind of, yeah. yeah. And so so it was interesting to learn all those things. And some of them are very instinctual.
2: Mm-hmm. Instincts though I guess would still be shaped by probably things that you yourself have consumed. So what I, I read louis might have been one of the things what are some of the the things that you had consumed that most influenced fleabag
1: i can never quite like pin it to things because i think it's always just a mix of everything you've ever watched yeah isn't it but i think louis really blew my mind open in terms of how loose he was with the structure and how kind of how kind of fuck you he was about how to how to tell a story how to tell a joke And I felt like so many of the episodes were jokes in themselves. Like he structured the whole thing so that sometimes it would just be at the end, there'd be this moment. And they always had such depth and, and pathos to them. So that show really impacted me. And then I I watched Alfie a few times when I was making it because, well, for the obvious reasons,
2: um, (laughs) this, uh, this is like a, just in case anybody's listening, it's made like 1966 or something, Michael Caine and, why can you share why that would have been a, a reference point?
1: Well, he was a kind of he's a chauffeur and he's a playboy and he's this like cheeky little chappy and he talks to the camera and he tells us what's going on in his life. And he's very misogynistic and he treats women very badly and he's very sort of dismissive about them, even to us. And the tragedy is is that his life is um, actually not that fantastic, mm-hmm. but his bravado is The thing that keeps him talking to you, and that was really similar. I hadn't chimed into it until I'd realized I was a dad, and I was watching all the thing, all the fourth wall breaking kind of things, and uh, and that one really affected me. There's a bit right at the end of the film when he almost gives a bit of himself up, and he doesn't, and that was the moment Mm -hmm. that that excited me so much Mm -hmm. as an audience member, and so that really that really inspired it.
2: What was it like now? You you get through your first show. That's in I guess entirely your baby, because as you're saying, crashing was more of a committee thing. So you get it done, having now felt a little burned before with the way crashing was received. How do you, did you have to kind of brace yourself for when this was now going to go out to the world for the first time, Fleabag?
1: I did, but I had a different feeling about it because, because I'd learned so much from doing crashing, but also because, I mean, the stakes did feel really high, but I really believed in the story of Fleabag and it, the depth of it. And I sort of felt like, I felt like it was a story. Where, I wasn't sure. I mean, I was shit scared that people weren't going to like it. Mm. I mean, we're all going to feel like that. But I felt like at the end of the day, but I felt like in a little way, this story kind of mattered because it goes places that, that I was proud of. Mm-hmm. So I could kind of stand a bit, a bit stronger by it then. But then, yeah, when it actually goes out, I mean, Twitter is the scariest face <laughs> in the world. Real also, time. Yeah, real yeah. time. And I was away when it went out. I always try and just leave the country when things go out. <laughs> so I left the country and then I was just, oh, I just went on. Episode two was going out because I kind of knew that episode one was okay because it what got us the commission with Amazon and other mm-hmm. people that show interest. And on episode two, I was like, this is where I die. <laughs> and uh, and then I was watching it on Twitter go out and then I was sort of like, oh, okay, people are laughing. People Pretty are quickly kind of following, yeah.
2: yeah. I've read that one of the things that has rated on you. And I, I get why it just, it seems like anytime, whether it's you or Lena Dunham or a few other young women who have made shows that in some way touch upon issues that could fall under the umbrella of feminist related feminism, whatever, that suddenly you are now expected to become a spokesperson for that subject matter and uh, anal- analyst about it and all of that. So how quickly did that start to happen and how did you feel about that because it doesn't I mean I guess maybe the first place to begin is just as you understand it what is feminism are you a feminist and then getting hit with that
1: yeah I mean I certainly am a feminist and always have been always will be until the day when that word doesn't need to exist anymore <laughs> I can't imagine that's gonna be in my lifetime but my best expression of ha- how I feel about it and my own analysis of of it was always in the show (laughs) because Fleabag's confused. She doesn't want to get it wrong. Like, I don't want to get it wrong. You know, I care so much about how that aspect of Fleabag landed because it was... That there are, uh, again, it's a similar thing to the drama school thing, but like there are rules that I don't know. I can't see what the rules are, but apparently you can fuck this up. (laughs) And um, it's terrifying because it's something you care so much about and uh, you don't want to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And a lot of the time I think we had, well, I certainly did. I had these secret thoughts about like having shame about my body or things that felt like if I actually expressed would wouldn't be helping the cause in, in some way when actually I think it's the absolute opposite. I think the mm-hmm. more that we talk about it and the more that men are interested in it as well, because women talk to each other about it all the time. Mm-hmm. So we're shouting into our own and each other's vaginas about it the <laughs> whole time. And you just want, um, and it's when it's now, was great because men are, are listening and, and are interested and in, in a public way as well. And I think well, I've gone a bit off track from what your no, original question fine. was. But
2: it's, Well, I guess what we could do now is talk about how, because this, only, in terms of the feminist conversation, was only that you've been, you know, become more and more uh, people want you to be a part of. That was only exacerbated by Killing Eve, which comes in because, I guess, initially of the imagination of Sally Woodward. Gentle, can you tell people who she is and why she would have ever thought that she should? approach you about doing this
1: (laughs) well sally runs sid gentle films and she read fleabag when it first was in london after edinburgh and she'd read it and she'd got these novellas that she'd read from luke jennings and she was crazy about them rightfully so and then sent them to me and said would you consider this and they were they were considering a bunch of other writers and she said you know what do you think about this and i was like i mean yes i couldn't (laughs) believe that I hadn't even made a TV show or anything at that point, and she had said, "You know, you've written this this monologue. Come on, like, what do you think about this drama?" Right. And um, there was something about someone just having that faith in you from the off just immediately makes you up your game. And I was like, "Yeah, I'd lo- I'd love to do that." And then I had to wait for like "Crashing a Fleabag" to be done, and then jumped on board and had a had a falafel with Luke Jennings <laughs> after Fleabag when he came to see it, and we just talked about psychopaths and and obsession and you know all those kind of things this is a great thing about being in this industry is you yeah. just I I've met Luke after two minutes of talking of meeting Luke we were talking about kind of psychopaths and <laughs> and like sexual obsessions right. over a falafel
2: but it seems like it would be a totally different endeavor to have to now adapt someone else's pre-existing work as opposed to writing just what comes out of you and your experiences so I read that at one point you did turn it down so why did you turn it down and then why did you reconsider oh killing eve Yes,
1: I turned it down because of time, because yeah. I uh, and only for that reason, because I had Fleabag bag to make, and these things move fast, and I just assumed they'd want to move on. And then Sally said, "No, we're going to wait." And then she came back, and I was, that's so it was crashing out Fleabag around that time, and I was like, "Oh mm-hmm. God, now I'm doing yeah, fleabag. And then she just waited and waited and waited, and then when it came round to it, we then had to do this huge document together. It was like a fifteen-page document that we were taking out, and and then it got knocked back by a bunch of people. And the process is so long. Yeah. But then, but I love the idea of adapting it because so much is already there and it's a relief not to, not for it always to be something that you birth completely yeah. yourself, yeah. like conceive a little and left. birth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: How seriously was it considered that you might play one of the two women?
1: It came up like early, but I felt just again, very instinctively that these weren't for me. Like they didn't really... I don't think the characters wanted me to play either of them. But I'd also written... They're actually closer in age in the books. They're both in their late 20s. Mm-hmm. And I had I just had a really strong instinct, which Luke was totally behind, that there should be this age gap. Because, again, it was something that I just felt like I hadn't seen. And I'm not a 25-year-old Jodie Comer. I mean, let's let's be frank. <laughs> and um, I don't know if I could have scaled a wall quite like she could. Have done, you know. um, and you know, and I'm not in my early forties either. So I, I wrote myself out of it. And then I kept saying, kind of accidentally, just you know, honouring the work. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, oh, I'm going to write myself a, a part right. so that I can be murdered by Jodie. And unfortunately, <laughs> we just never got around not to yet, it. yeah, I know.
2: Just a random question, but was Eve? Uh, I'm not familiar. You know, I didn't read the books. Was Eve of Asian descent in the?
1: Book. no she's not in the books no
2: so for you this is just sort of may the best actress went and for luke yeah. absolutely for everybody yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. totally because it was... it's been a major you know thing obviously for Sandro's yeah. made some history with all of this and i just thought it was uh I was curious how how that came about but what were the biggest changes aside from the age aside from the ethnicity any other major changes that where you deviated from the book
1: Carolyn Martins, that character f- played by Fiona Shaw, sh- that character was based on a male character in the book who pops up less than she does in the mm. TV show. And for various reasons, you need people to be around more. You need to kind of up characters' presence and stuff. But I really felt like to have this triptych of women, one you know, 25 year old, 41 year old. And then, oh, I don't know how old Fiona is, yeah, yeah, but just those three generations, I just thought it'd be really really cool, and Luke was just thrilled. he was so behind it and then and there's various story things we only had up to book five before um, so we had to write beyond. but Luke was with us the whole way.
2: I got a kick out of like you know a few things where you've talked about the appeal of of that of killing you for you, where it's like, yes, when you actually stop and think about it, there are, how many shows can we name where both the pursuer and the pursuit are women where the way that somebody taught somebody else is sending them the clothes that fit them better than anything else, all of this. You have also said that, quote, the challenge was to make it feel very violent without actually showing anything, close quote. And there really isn't much gore and violence or whatever. But at the same time, you were saying for women, it's particularly resonant to have it this dynamic because so often, and maybe men don't even realize it, there's constant violence against women, but is it sort of cathartic to be able to turn the tables with that? And Mm. yeah, you think for you and for the female viewer? I think
1: so, definitely. Yeah, definitely for me. I think having that, just having... (laughs) All the women not have to be victims was yeah. just already refreshing, <laughs> and that's when I first read the novellas. I couldn't believe it. It was like you know sometimes it just takes a real genius to come up with a, a, a simple idea, and and Luke writing that these two it was like a a female female cat and mouse. It was just like, God damn it! Like why has no one thought about that before? And um, and also that they are that they're trained and that they get they just get it's just and also just for actresses to get to do the same things that actors do like my my thing the whole time because probably I am an actor as well so I want to write things that actors love playing because I think audiences can feel that in an instant and it makes it even more electric and being able to say to Jodie you know you can this is this is your character this wild unpredictable girl and you don't even have to take your top off
2: (laughs) I want to just talk about how What you decided to do, I guess because of just the massive workload of juggling these multiple shows here, you did not return as the head writer for the second season of Killing Eve, but obviously we're still very involved. But the interesting thing was you handed it to another female writer who I think is a a friend of yours. And it seems like that is the game plan. The show's not ending anytime soon. That is going to be something that you want to continue to do in the same way that you want to... Keep the writers' rooms and the crews particularly diverse. Is that a decision you have made for moving forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, but with this, with Sid Gentle uh, as well, you know, it's very. Everyone felt very passionate about yeah. it, and the actors as well. You know, it's it, it's it's hard to hard to catch a break in this uh, industry yeah. and, and you know historically really hard for women to be trusted I think with, with, often with women in the industry you can fail once and then you're gone yeah. with guys I feel like they're, they're, there's a, you have a few more chances and so people are given less of a chance and so the idea is just to be able to give a season to a woman who may not have written TV before but you just know they've got it they you just know it. they've got it yeah. and because that's what they did for me and it right. paid off and I think it's paid off you know and it will continue to because they're brilliant brilliant people across yeah. the board
2: Fleabag season two is about to hit the world. And I just wonder from reading some of your more recent interviews and profiles and whatever, it seems like you had some reservations about doing a second season. So what were they? How'd you get past them? What are you proudest about, about this second season?
1: I was convinced that Fleabag would only be one season because the play, it was an adaptation of the play, and right. the play had an ending, yeah. and then then the TV show had an ending. And what was really great is that there wasn't any pressure from the channels, like there always is, really, to keep something open. And there was, I felt like I wanted this ending, and um, for season one, and it was going to end. And so they were all like, "Yeah, that's fine." And then they were like, "Just think about." Just think about maybe having a second one <laughs> just because it went, you know, it went down quite well. So yeah. then I did. And I was just worried that I wouldn't, that I'd tell the same story again. I, my biggest fear was that the most interesting version of that woman's story had been told mm-hmm. in series one and that she had to move on and she had to grow. And actually that time in between the two seasons was really important because she could come back and she was uh, believably a different person. Yeah. And had grown up a bit and, and needed different things from the
2: world. And we see her like, what's like the least likely thing she would be after the first season I guess religious. Yeah exactly exactly and I was so
1: interested in that and in in, in that being a theme for it and and what religion means to us now and those basic Christian principles how they apply today and that she would come up against that already seemed funny.
2: (laughs) We had some news break today there was definitely each time you've done the role of Fleabag there has been sort of all right that is it it's not gonna I've done all I can with it. I, I'm moving on with my life. Today, we <laughs> learned that that has been extended one final time. Can you just share for people who haven't gotten the memo yet what will be happening in August?
1: Yeah, we are come back to the West End. <laughs> so we're going to be playing at the Wyndham's Theatre. And it just felt like the perfect way to end the whole journey because we went our theatre company, you know, drive right from Edinburgh to the West End just felt like just a great way to send her off.
2: Right. And finally, I wonder just about how these things that started as 10 minute plays that, you know, you probably never thought would be performed outside of a intimate theater setting, how they have sort of led to not only full fledged shows, but, but also to just kind of massive things that you might not have ever imagined. We can reference, you know, you were a droid in Solo, a Star Wars story, <laughs> which was funny because when I saw that announced, we had had Jerry Seinfeld on this podcast in 2016 and, and we're asking, you know, would you like to do more acting for other people? And he's like, I would like to play a droid in Star Wars. <laughs> I would like to be called, are you serious? So that, <laughs> and he would just be a droid that goes around asking, are you serious? What, do you really need to do the flipping and the kicking before, you know, moving your lightsaber and all that? Does it really add anything? Are you serious? <laughs> I'm glad you're pitching so, that again. Yeah, let no, <laughs> in the world like, so that Good. was one but now the last latest i believe you will be joining a, another franchise and i guess at the request of, of james bond himself so how <laughs> how did that come about and how do you quite process where this has all led
1: <laughs> I, don't know. I think i'm still processing it i think it might be one of those things that you don't i don't process until like way after like right. when i finished star wars it was about a week after i would finished it and i was just on a bus <laughs> and i suddenly went Oh my God, I was in Star Wars. I called my sister and I was like, Yeah, I was in Star Wars. She was like, Yes, I like, yeah, you finished a week ago. I think um, you just sort of know the grindstone so quickly, right. it's the kind of thing. And I think, yeah, I got the call from Daniel and um, Barbara Broccoli, and they'd been obviously talking about it and just thought it would, I don't know, it would work. And so came to meet them, and it's really exciting. The film they've got is really, it's such an exciting story. And, and you know, it's just. It's
2: it's it's just been a joy to work. And you'll on. bring some some of the uh, female feminist sort of humor that we've enjoyed in other stuff, maybe that has not always been present in that franchise. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, I mean, we'll see. We'll see um, yeah. when I can sneak in. Right. Um, but I. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. It's mainly just making them feel like real Right. People. Right. You know? Which they do in the previous films. I think Daniel's films have done, you know, we've had really, really fantastic Bond girls. So it's just keeping up that. Absolutely. Keeping it up there. Thank you for
2: doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash The Race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular.
0: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW approved. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.